Hey everybody, this is episode 135 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas on a Wednesday. And I'm actually introing another episode from my new podcast, the Clean Sport Collective podcast that I'm doing with Kara Goucher and her agent, Shanna Burnett. We actually had Jenny Simpson on for our fourth episode and it's one that I think you all would want to hear as well. So this will be the last time that I cross post episodes, but I thought this one was worthy of it and I wanted to make sure that all of you knew about the new podcast that I'm doing as a side project. Again, that's called the Clean Sport Collective Podcast. We are now also on iTunes as well as Spotify and Google Play for those who have Androids. And so you should be able to find that podcast wherever you're getting your podcasts. And it's a good one. We've released four episodes so far that I think are all intriguing. And this fourth one with Jenny Simpson is really intriguing, especially for the runners out there. And I think you'll enjoy it very much. Again, I'll, I'll link to the iTunes links as well as the Spotify link for the podcast, the new podcast in the show notes so that you can go out and subscribe to that. But I would encourage you to check it out. We'll be releasing new content every other week, and we've already got a bunch of great interviews in the docket coming at you over the next couple of months. Of course, I'll still be doing this podcast as always, but wanted to make sure that you had the info on that one. And again, I think this conversation with Jenny is really fascinating for the runner fans out there. Jenny, incidentally, this weekend in Morocco, raced in a Diamond League 1500 meter, and she finished seventh in a race that was won by Genzebi Dababa in 3.55, but Jenny was able to break four minutes for the 1500 for the 10th time, and she ran a 3.59.83, becoming the first American to break four minutes in the 1500 10 times. She's followed by former Nike runner, Mary Decker Slaney, who has done it eight times. And so that shows the consistency. And she's also incidentally done it over the last 10 years. So her first time to break four was in 2009 as a collegiate athlete, which we actually talk to her about in this episode. And then she did it again 10 years later for the 10th time in 2019 at the Morocco Robot Diamond League. And so I think it's appropriate that this episode happened to release on the same day that she did that. It's it's a fascinating discussion, one that I think you'll enjoy, and I hope you subscribe to the new podcast. Again, I'll include all the links to it in the show notes. But without further ado, I'll segue into my intro for this fourth episode of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. Hello and welcome to episode number four of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, joined for this intro by Shanna Burnett and Kara Goucher as we are excited to introduce our first athlete interview in the Clean Sport Collective podcast history. We've got Jenny Simpson on the show. We are hoping to make this more than just about running in this podcast, even though the three of us come from a running background. We're hoping to open this podcast up to talk about clean sport across all sports. Jenny happens to be our first athlete guest. She is a runner, but I want to tell you, if you're not someone who follows runners, then Jenny is someone to follow. She is one of the greatest U.S. milers of all time, male or female. 
She has four global championship medals and lots of other accolades that we'll talk about soon. But she is an athlete who is doing it the right way, who is a committed, hardworking, disciplined athlete who you should be a fan of and who's also just a really great person. So we will be bringing Jenny on in just a second. And I think if you listen to this episode, then you'll learn those same things about her. Both of you know Jenny. You, Shanna, went to the University of Colorado at the same time that Jenny was there training and Kara, you know her through that network as, as somebody who preceded Jenny at the University of Colorado. I'll start with you, Kara. Why do you think Jenny is an athlete people should watch and be inspired by? Jenny is the epitome of an athlete just doing everything right. She's so focused in a way that is slightly intimidating to me. I've been able to train with her some the last five years and the way she approaches workouts and rest and feeling her body. She is so on point with everything. But her desire to challenge herself at the highest level, I think that's what the most is the most inspirational to me. She is a four-time global medalist, probably five actually, from the steeplechase back in, um, I believe, 09. Um, and she just still every day shows up ready to challenge herself even more. She's a she is a good role model. She works really hard. She stays focused on what she needs to stay focused on. And seeing that come out with big results, it just she is one person in particular. Actually, quick anecdote. When I was reaching out to Mark and Heather originally to have them coach me again. The coaches at University of Colorado. Yes. Yeah, so I had left and I was uh in the Nike program and I was coming, I was leaving that program and I said one of the only things that has given me hope the last few years has been watching Jenny Simpson and her return in 2013 when she won the silver medal at the world championships was so inspiring to me. And she's just an athlete that even in the darkest of days has given me hope. She's doing it the right way and still beating those who we know aren't. Absolutely. Shanna, you went to school with her, trained on the team with her at University of Colorado. What would you add to that about why Jenny's inspiring? I totally agree with Kara. She's always had a different, unique perspective that she brought to the team, even early on. Like I trained with her in college, Kara trained with her as a professional and she always just showed up for business and she knows what to do to become the best. And she has those marginal gains in every right way possible. Like she will get her rest. She will do the training. She will always focus and work hard and stay motivated and Aside of her, she's just a really good person. She really cares about giving back. She doesn't talk about it a lot, but ever since I knew her in college, she was volunteering with children. She was doing things at her church. She was showing up for people in a lot of other ways that she never even talks about publicly. That is such a special characteristic of who she is as a person, and it just bleeds into all the areas of her life. And I will add that even though she is a very clearly very kind and sweethearted person. She's also a stone cold, cold killer on the track. Just an absolute badass, which you have to be to have four medals in the 1500. And so she's very, very fierce as well. So with that as an intro, let's welcome Jenny Simpson to the show. Welcome Jenny Simpson to the podcast. How are you doing today, Jenny? I'm good. Thanks for having me. We are excited to have you. 
Shannon and I both happen to be running fans, but we also know that we're hopefully talking to an audience that may or may not know you and may or may not be running fans. So we want to start by just getting to know you. Tell us a little bit about Jenny. Where did you grow up? Where did you come from? And how did you get into sport? Yeah, so I started young. Uh, I never did any other sports except for running because I, I fell in love with it really early. Uh, I grew up in Florida. Uh, we moved there partway through my elementary years. And through a public school running program, it was a PE teacher who saw me out on the playground and said, you're a good looking runner. You have a lot of fun chasing down everybody. Why don't you join the after school running program? And so it was really to, um, you know, thanks to a public school teacher that um, plugged me into running from the very beginning. And uh, through the years, I just continued to uh, be part of the teams through middle school and high school, mostly because that's where I, I had initially met so many of my friends in elementary school. And you just kind of follow your friends around through school. Uh, and it really blossomed into a love of running and which is special being in Florida because now that I live in train out in Colorado, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so hot and humid. <laughs> and, uh, the opportunity to run there is very different from a lot of the kids that grow up doing outdoors things here in, in Colorado. So I feel really grateful that I had such, um, uh, a great introduction and a love for the sport really young being in Florida. Um, and I started running five K's at, you know, track shack race series and stuff like that. So it was really the introduction that a lot of people have. I just kind of fell into the sport because other people around me really loved it. And I fell in love with the community of the sport. And then of course, uh, going into high school, it became a little bit more serious on the, on the competitive side of things. And that's when I started winning races for the first time and, um, really seeing where I stacked up against other girls my age, um, and started working towards hopefully what I hoped, hoped, hoped would be a college scholarship. Uh, and by my senior year, uh, I had really blossomed into a formidable component on the high school level, uh, and came out here to the university of Colorado to, to compete for them for as a Buffalo. And now you're still living in Colorado. You did a stint in Colorado Springs, but have mostly been in Boulder since, Tell us about your evolution in the sport since figuring out that you had a future in it in high school. I feel fortunate that I never really had this incredible pressure to be like the greatest runner in any dimension. And so you hear these stories about kids that, you know, they're five years old and they dream of running the Olympics. Uh, that wasn't exactly my story. I just kind of followed the sport. And anytime I found myself in a particular arena, I just wanted to really master that arena and be the best on that stage possible. And especially when I got a scholarship to come to school and run at the University of Colorado, I thought, wow, this is such a life opportunity to use my running to get the best education possible and kind of start a life in a different place and have a different experience. Um, but my love and my success and my joy in running just continued to grow here. Um, I started out at CU as a steeplechaser and ran four years as a steeplechaser under Mark and Heather, who were the coaches at CU. Um, had four and a half incredible years as a Buffalo, um, and, and really started what has turned into, um, this really great career. I, uh, qualified for my first Olympic games as a junior in college, uh, which was super fun, uh, to have that kind of success when I was still a student. Um, and that really was just a springboard for me in a lot of ways saying like the, 
opportunity for me is really going to be correlated to what I want to put into it and what I want to dedicate to it. And I'm lucky in that way. A lot of people work really hard in sports and don't reach the point that they aspire to. And I really saw that I had that opportunity, especially making the Olympics as a student. Um, And so now 10-ish years later, uh, I'm a three-time Olympian and I specialize now in the 1500 meters in the mile. Uh, I made a little bit of a shift uh, in around 2010, 2011, uh, away from the steeple into the 15, um, and have had a lot of success there and still, still loving it, still trying to be the master of the arena I'm in. And it's, it's tough and it, it gets, it's just as tough for different reasons every year. Um, but I still love it. The metric mile is, is, is what you're a master at. Also the mile. But for those that don't listen, the 1500 meters is the metric mile. That's what we compete at on the global stage. You have four global championship medals. Just to talk about your resume a little bit more, 11 U.S. titles, I believe, if I'm doing my math right. Three NCAA titles at Colorado. You and Shanna were together at the University of Colorado, from what I understand. So I'm going to bring Shanna into the conversation. What was Jenny like at CU? Oh, she was amazing. I remember her coming in as a freshman. I was a sophomore. Jenny was a freshman and she was always so dedicated from the moment she came. (laughs) She was on a plan and she was here to do business and she took it really seriously. And I also will say that from outside of running, she's really intelligent as well. She was always. Oh, thanks. Oh, that's true. (laughs) I I want you to. Well, first, I do want to a little bit embarrass you for a second because we started at the steeplechase for together and I remember one of our first practices with the steeple do you remember that it was you and me and Heather Burroughs it's unforgettable actually (laughs) 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 so I'm like I love it because Jenny conquered the steeplechase so I always tell people the story but um the water pit was a little bit of a difficult uh, first In the transition. first practice, it conquered me. But <laughs> yes, carry on. You can tell the story. <laughs> it was so cute. Because Heather and I, I think we almost died laughing on the side because Jenny, if you know Jenny Simpson and her doing the steeplechase, she conquered it. And so her first time going into the water pit, maybe she went a little bit swimmy. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Got a little wet. Here's, here's the key. I always say if somebody's starting the steeplechase is you have to be fearless. Like you have to be fearless. That is not a good advice for me. <laughs> when you stack fearless on top of fearless, you get perilous. <laughs> and it was nearly that my first steeple practice. <laughs> Paralysis. So awesome. Yes. And then, so I just want people to know too, like if you never got into where you are as an Olympian and everything that you have accomplished, what would you be doing if you weren't running? Oh, that's such a good question. I mean, there's so many things that I'm interested in, so I don't know what interests would have really risen to the top. Um, I was an economics and political science major at school and really enjoyed that and really enjoyed digging into tough conversations with, um, classmates and professors. And so, uh, that's always been, uh, something I've really enjoyed and something that I continue to enjoy because there's a lot of really, uh, thoughtful people in our sport and in our community. Um, I don't know what really would have grabbed my interest and, and risen to the top. I initially came into the university of Colorado, really intrigued by, um, the credentials of the law school. 
and had kind of imagined I would go on to law school. Um, not going to lie. I, I think it worked out having a 10 year <laughs> career as a pro athlete over law really school. Worked out. I'm not going to complain about that. There's always law school too, Jenny. You can <laughs> always go back. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the trajectory that probably would have, uh, most likely taken if, if running had not, had not worked out. Yes, you'd be great. She always outran us and outsmarted us. So <laughs> that's a little generous, but thank you. <laughs> I only speak truth. <laughs> so you had two amazing coaches there, Heather Burroughs, Mark Wetmore, considered one of the greatest distance programs that in the country. You took a brief break for them from them as your coaches, but are now back with them, have been with them for a long time. What have those two individuals taught you about how to build in this sport the right way? Oh gosh, that's so good. Um, you, you have to go to the start line with some amount of armor on. And I think you can best do that when the expectation every day is that you can be honest in your everyday life. And so one of the great gifts Mark and Heather have given me is that practice is a place where you have to show up and you have to do really tough stuff. Um, but I still have the relationship with them to be able to be honest in the moments where it's most necessary to be vulnerable um, and to to really give them the feedback and take in the lessons along the way. So the ordinary life is that, you know, there's just so much growth and so much learning that happens. And so then when I get to race day, um, there's no question about who I am or what I've accomplished or what I'm capable of because we've explored and excavated and discovered all of that in the ordinary life between the races. Uh, and I think that's the really great gift they've given me over the years. Honesty. I would assume there's a little bit of hard work in there too <laughs> with yeah. those two as your coaches and yeah. with the discipline that you've obviously showed to your career. If you're going to be an elite athlete and have a long career, it's kind of a prerequisite. It's the cost of of, of doing business that you have to have a team that's excellent and you have to have an athlete that would do it if the team didn't show up. And so, yeah, there's so many great qualities that both my coaches have and that they've, um, kind of nurtured in me. Um, so I think we bring a lot to the table. Um, so the, the daily life and the trust that we have in each other, I think that's what kind of puts it up over the edge. So Shanna, asking you, watching Jenny as a freshman and then growing collegiate athlete, how did she do things differently that's, that showed you what work, hard work looked like? She always took everything she did very seriously. It was, like I said earlier, like it was always about business. And I will say this to the end of time. There is no one that can uh, compete with her mentally. She just, she's a gamer. Like she will show up at that starting line and you don't know if she's feeling good or she's feeling bad or she's having an off day. She just knows how to get the work done. And that's always something I've really admired about her. Uh, she just, she has an, another way of thinking about it and another pain threshold that she can put herself in. And man, she's a great closer too. Oh, thanks. <laughs> you have to be in the mile. You have to be. One question I had, and I was I was actually at the Olympics in Beijing when you had your first experience there in the steeplechase. Was there a point 
when you realized that not everybody was doing it honestly? Because I would assume growing up in sport, as somebody who played soccer, I never thought about cheating or the dirty side of things. It just wasn't in my mind. But I also never got to the level where it became an issue. So at what point did you realize that that was something that was out there? The higher level you go up, um, the more likely you are to encounter a conversation where people are suspicious of other people or... um, there's a concern about whether the playing field is level. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful and I think it's not a bad thing that most people at the younger end of the scale go in more naive. Um, and, and that's a beautiful place to start. You know, I think, uh, to, to start believing that you have as much of a chance as a person standing next to you, um, contingent only on your hard work. I think that's where we should start. Um, and I hope it's that way. Um, but the longer you're in that, the more that you hear about the possibility that it's not a level playing field. And I can't say that early on, I felt like I, I fully experienced it or a hundred percent believed it. Um, but you do start hearing those sorts of things. Um, the steeplechase is a little bit special in a way that it requires uh, an element of fearlessness and, uh, and some technical ability, uh, that, and, and in 2008, the Olympic games, that was the first time, uh, women ran the steeplechase in the Olympics. So it was a really new young sport for, for females. And so there were different elements that I think that it just wasn't a big part of the conversation early in my career, um, which again, I'm grateful for. I don't know how much of a part it was of other people's performances, um, but but I felt uh, like I was a little bit on the outskirts of having experienced that or having to consider it when I was standing on the starting line early in my career. Um, I don't know that the 1500 is different necessarily in its makeup of people um, that are playing fair or not playing fair, but it definitely became a larger part of the conversation as I shifted from steeplechasing into the 1500 meters. Uh, if you talk to a lot of track and field people, most people would say the great running events that kind of rise to the top are the 100, the 15, and the marathon. Those are the three that people kind of are the, the most aware of globally. And I think it's that kind of spotlight on the 15 um, that kind of makes it most available for that conversation of, is this a level playing field? This is a really highly competitive prize that people want is a global medal in an event where most people in the world have some relationship with the mile um, or some understanding of it. And so the conversation is a lot more uh, uh, present and robust, I think, in that event than it was in the steeple. And you made that switch in, was it 2010 or 2011? I ran my first world championships competing in the 1500 was 2011. Where you won gold. Yes. So, yeah, where I won the world championship. So you knew at least the person on top was doing it the right way. Yes. A uh, little life trajectory uh, <laughs> situation. If you uh, switch your event, try to try something new and you win the world championships at it, that becomes your new event. <laughs> That's a good philosophy. I mean, I remember Prefontaine. It was Prefontaine that year, right? Yeah, Where you in broke, 2009. Yeah. You broke four mm-hmm. for the first time in the 15 and it was sort of 
like, oh, no, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is a thing. Jenny Simpson can run a damn good 1500. I was going to say that's the most PG reaction I've heard somebody <laughs> say, but yes. <laughs> yeah, a little bit about that. Uh, and, and again, it's just, it's a really fun memory. So 2009 was my last track season as a collegian. And we were on a tear. I was running really great. My coaches were putting me in different events. And we were saying from the 815 5k, uh, what steeplechase, you know, how great can we be at all these middle distances? And it was coming up, we were coming right up to the NCAA championships and I had collected a really fun streak of collegiate records, but I hadn't run a 15 yet. And I never specialized or focused on the 15 in college. And so my coach reached out to the Prefontaine classic and said, Hey, we have this punk college kid that <laughs> wants to try to run for a collegiate record, which at the time was Hannah England was 406, um, really incredible athlete, incredible, uh, time. And, uh, the meet was great. They stuck me in there. They gave me a, a spot on the start line and, uh, I shocked myself. I shocked my coaches. Uh, I shocked a lot of the track and field world. Um, I think I was the fourth American woman to ever break four minutes in the 15 smashing the collegiate record as a kid as a punk college kid coming in beating and beating pros so i always i i take it as a double-edged sword because uh it was this great incredible wonderful moment for me and yet i know at some point in my career uh some punk college kid is going to come in and do that to me while i was in the stands <laughs> screaming <laughs> and crying when that happened i remember that vividly yeah. But it's a great testament to, you know, even if you're, I was great at the steeplechase. I was an Olympian in the steeplechase at that point. Uh, but it's a testament to the value of trying new things and, and exploring what, what is available to you inside your industry or inside your sport or inside, um, the arena that you're in and, uh, just stepping out and trying something a little bit different. I found something I was better at. So one year after you won gold at 2011, world championships you did not make the final at the olympic games in london and so we're watching that and since that final has has been run some are calling it now the dirtiest race since the 100 meter dash in 1988 with six women that have been implicated in one way or another i think four officially disqualified including the top two athletes who have been disqualified from that race so you were watching that at home at the time, did you know it was a dirty final? Six out of 13 women have been implicated. Did you know it was a dirty final at that point? And at what point did you start to realize, wow, this is a big issue in my event? So worse than watching it at home, I was actually still watching it in London at like a at a at a restaurant and bar with my sponsors like oh, wow. that's not where you want to be with your sponsors at the olympic games is watching your final on television um but you know people around me were really supportive and really wonderful i had um a world title to defend and that was a heavy burden through 2012 um and with a relatively new coach um, I think a heavy burden for her as well. And it was just a lot. And we worked really hard, just like any athlete in any season, there's no perfect buildup. And so we headed to the Olympic trials and I was so grateful to make the team, um, cause it had been a, a rough road kind of getting to the trials in the first place. I absolutely still believed in my ability to go and perform 
when it mattered most, uh, but unfortunately didn't make it through to the final. That was my second year on the world stage competing in the 1500. And so I, I wasn't as, uh, I didn't have as much of an experience and an understanding, um, of my competitors as well as I had the steeplechase from, from doing it for so many years, kind of at that world level. And so, and then also when you're caught up in your own struggle and your own journey and your own sense of hope and then disappointment, uh, my world was really wrapped into the, you know, two foot by two foot square space I was taking up in the world <laughs> and, uh, and thinking, you know, how, how do I get from this, uh, stool in a restaurant watching the final with my sponsor to proving that the world championship wasn't a mistake last year, um, or wasn't a fluke last year. So, um, I was really consumed by my own career and my own hopes and dreams f- for, for the future. And, and watching um, my fellow American Morgan Euseni fall in the final was a big disappointment and really hard to watch. And uh, I really felt a lot of pain for her in those moments. So there, there's a lot of drama and a lot of things going on no matter what. Um, and whether it's a level playing field on the day of the race shouldn't be part of the context. And it became immediately apparent um, as we were approaching the games and then afterwards um, with a lot of the stuff going on and a lot of athletes popping up that hadn't been competitive the previous years, um, that this was going to be, that the level playing field and a clean sport was going to be part of the conversation. Now, when I was there and as we were experiencing that, you think in the heat of the moment, this is when it's going to be the biggest question and the biggest part of the conversation. I think what's interesting and a little bit unique about that particular race is that the, the concern and the disqualifications and the realization of how unfair it was only grew from that race day into the future we're in now. Because immediately people started questioning at least the top two athletes in the field. It seems I've read that Lisa Dabrisky in particular was pretty outspoken about some of those questions, or at least she has mentioned since that she went to authorities saying that there had to be something going on. Were you in the same place or was it more about just moving on and looking ahead? Having someone like Lisa Dabrisky who had a good, has a great reputation in the sport and has a silver medal uh, in the 1500 meters, hearing her speak up and voice such clear conviction over her concern about the level playing field um, got my attention, certainly. Being a younger person in that event and in the sport at the elite level, um, I was still in a process of really coming to awareness and learning and observing the people that I respected in the sport and how they handled their questions about a level playing field. Even to this day, I don't think I have it figured out. Uh, well, we don't have it figured out. That's very clear. Um, but, but yeah, I think Lisa was um, an important part, especially in 2012 and her kind of coming forward and being transparent and honest about her concerns about the level playing field was an important part of me not just questioning but really caring about the future of the sport and and caring about um uh being a voice for clean sport well you've been an awesome one jenny 
and a great, honest voice to have out there. And I think the biggest thing for even fans watching the sport is always having hope. And I think the biggest thing with clean sport too is just to humanize and empathize with athletes because it's hard to realize what you all are going through when you line up on that line. Like when somebody gets there ethically and someone gets there unethically. So, I mean, I always reference it to, you know, like what if you are, you know, a lawyer? What if you did go on that and you're, you know, uh, going against people that didn't pass the bar or cheated on the bar? Um, how is that for you as an athlete? This is your profession, you know, knowing that you're doing something ethically every day and working hard and there are moments that are cheated and stolen from you. How, how is that to be able to cope with that? One of the things I tell myself is I've had the very incredible fortune of beating them all. <laughs> and I, I love it and stand on that. And there are times where I stand on the starting line and I think I've done it once, I can do it again. And whether the field is totally clean or it's totally dirty, I know I've beat a lot of dirty, <laughs> a lot of dirty athletes. And there's some amount of satisfaction in that. And just knowing I have four medals at home and I know it wasn't hundred percent fair. Um, and so I really try to live into what I've scraped back despite what's fair and unfair instead of what I've lost. Um, and the really important thing too, you know, you stand on the starting line and you're asked to take a lifetime worth of work and stack it up against other people. And you don't, you can't control and you can't know what other people's journey was to get to that starting line. Um, there's a really great, beautiful, uh, Quaker quote that says, let your life speak. And that's what I try to do and what I try to think about when I'm standing on the starting line is that the journey that got me to this point, this is my chance to let that life speak. And I have to get there with the full conviction that what I'm about to say is something I feel really great about. Uh, and so those are the things I really focus on. How do you not stay, how do you not get distracted though? I, I would imagine at some level standing there, you're looking around at your competitors, you know, in your head, which ones you believe in and which ones you don't. Is that a categorization you're mentally making? And does that affect how you race? I care a lot about uh, the different governing bodies, whether it's USADA or WADA or the IAAF or whatever, or USATF. Um, they have a job to do, and they need to hear very clearly from athletes that that job really matters. But when it comes to the starting line, I always say, whoever they allow on this starting line, it's my job to beat. And so there is some, um, I mean, it's, I, I, I'd be kidding myself and I'd be lying to everyone if I didn't say there's some amount of consciousness of what, um, you know, who you think is playing fair and who's not, but truly, truly, when I get on the starting line, I say, all right, these are the people that I am stacked up against. And all of that really goes out the window. And I say, to myself, you know, this is, this is the task I've been given is to beat these people on the starting line. One of the things I really enjoy about the 1500 is that it is such a combination of mastering multiple skills inside the same four minute period. 
you have to have a uh, speed endurance. You have to have um, a sharp mind to make really good decisions under an enormous amount of duress and oxygen debt. Uh, and you have to be able to, uh, make really smart tactical moves. And then you have to be able to throw yourself into another level, uh, the last 150 meters. So there's so many parts of strength and speed and conviction that all kind of come together. And whether, I mean, this has to be true because I've won (laughs) that, that there are amounts of combinations of those things that can bridge the gap between people that are doing this honestly and people that aren't. I don't know if that's true in every event. And that's one of the reasons why I've really loved the 15 because I, I have bridged the gap and I believe I can do it. Um, if I was in another event where I really felt like I couldn't make up that ground that other people stole along the way, I think it would be a much harder, uh, it would be a much harder career. So you mentioned USADA, WADA, the U.S. and World Anti-Doping Agencies. How do you feel about what those two organizations are doing to govern the sport and to find those that aren't doing it the right way? What is your current feeling about the state of anti-doping efforts? Oh man, that's, <laughs> it's so complicated. And, and part of it is tough too, because I have to, you have to head or I, you don't have to, I've chosen to really kind of hedge some of my awareness of the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of these different governing bodies and these different um, agencies that have a job to do and whether they're doing it well or not. I've kind of guarded and hedged and protected myself to some degree against it because, um, meaning that I'm not reading every news article, I'm not reading every uh, every sense of suspicion or every editorial or um, opinion on how they're doing because my job is already so hard as it is, hmm. and to to have this clear conviction that my mission is is possible and in in the environment that we live in now you have to kind of put some of that at bay and you have to kind of push some of it away and so my coaches and my husband um they're really great gatekeepers and really great people at kind of helping me filter um what what's coming at me that I really need to know um and so I I don't feel like the best person to necessarily um, speak to the intricacies of how well or how poorly, you know, I have a sense of it in my own, um, in my own uh, awareness and my own heart about how they're doing. But again, I mean, you can't be corrupt in one way and not be corrupt in all ways. Uh, you can't say we, we are totally, totally great in this area and we're going to just let the world be the way it wants to run in another area. Um, and so that, that part is hard in my career when I see some areas of our sport that are really struggling and, and the IAAF and WADA holding, uh, you know, speaking to a certain standard and then not holding the entire world to that standard. Um, it really can shake your confidence that what you're doing is worthwhile. So speaking of the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of WADA and even the phrase of you are the company that you keep. How did you stay focused at the Olympics 
when an athlete that you were racing against, their coach just got busted for EPO? How do you stay focused in those situations? <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I got some questions about uh, some of the people on the start line in 2016. And my general response there was, uh, you know, a tree by the fruit that it bears. And exactly. the the fruit of your life shows how you're living it. And so I didn't feel like I had to be um, jury and judge. The, the world had to just look at, um, you know, like you said, the company you keep and look at a progression of somebody's um, abilities set up against what, you know, the progression that we've seen across elite athletes over, um, over for the 1500 meter, uh, you know, decades. Yes. Exactly. So you watch those things and you say, I don't have to be jury and judge here. The, the world can see what's happening and, and they can see what's likely, what's probable and what's impossible. Um, and so if you think anyone in the world ever in the history of time has ever doped and cheated, then the people that are doing the most improbable and impossible tasks against equally elite and gifted and talented people, um, you know, the, the world can see it for themselves. I totally agree. And going back to the company you keep, I personally know your coach is Mark Wetmore and Heather Burroughs, obviously, and then your husband, Jason. How do you, they support you and what do you, what do they say to you in these moments of like, you know, insecurities or doubts or just, you know, like we are doing it the right way. Um, how do they motivate you and keep you inspired to keep pushing? To get like really personal and really um, truthful about how hard this can be. Because I've said a lot about how I keep myself positive. And how I keep myself in some sense of my own truth and also some denial maybe, yes. about what's around me. Ignorance is bliss. <laughs> I, I raced uh, in 2015. I had uh, a really, really uh, amazing run personally for myself in Monaco. And I stepped off the track and I was totally like destroyed. And I thought if this is... When you see a crowd stand on their feet um, for something that I felt like I don't belong here. I, this isn't what I'm, this is, if, if this is what the world wants, I'm not, this is not what I have to give. And uh, that, that race was just a, a really, really tough personal moment for me, stepping off the track and saying what I do isn't what people were cheering for tonight. Um, and, and I don't know if I belong here anymore. And then to go on and compete in the world championship championships after that, and then face an Olympic year the following year. Um, you know, those are, those are real lonely and significant moments in a person's career. And I mean, like you said, you know, you referenced, uh, somebody passing or cheating on the bar in in, in the industry of, of law it doesn't matter if you're an elite athlete and somebody's um, misrepresenting what you love and and work so hard for in sports, or if it's in a different area. There, are, when you when you sit in that dark, lonely space and you say, "I don't belong mm-hmm. uh, here in 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 what I'm working so hard for," um, yeah, you have a decision to make. Maybe you don't belong there, um, or it just further solidifies who you know you want to be. Um, and, and it certainly did that for me 
and back to your initial question, because of the people I'm, I'm around, you have to have really strong, really clear-minded people that in those darkest, deepest moments don't feed into um, what you feel you're not a part of and instead really feel in, feed into who are you, what are you doing this for, who do you want to be, what got you in it in the first place and why have you worked so hard behind the scenes when no one's watching and when they you know jason and mark and heather um john evans uh and and other people in my life have been have had those really really clear focused um thoughts when it's been hard for me to find them that's huge i mean i have to say really quick that's devastating though that you say i don't belong here when you're the one who's doing it right and working hard every day and i think that's what is the most devastating about clean sport is the athletes do find hopeless times understandably why but how much hope we have in you and athletes like you that are doing it every day the honest way i mean i have to give you so much respect and kudos for that yeah and I went to crush for an Olympic medal the next year so <laughs> so yeah yeah like I said I mean you gotta believe got you can bronze, bridge the bronze yeah. and a silver in the world champs That's in 2017 right. so That's still right. <laughs> staying in it but it is inspiring to see that you you're able to stay with it and not get cynical because man as a fan it's hard not to be cynical <laughs> and I can't even imagine if my livelihood were on the line how I would stay above the fray i i spend some time around kids and i really love encouraging younger people um when i was in college and up till today i've worked with um some really fun refugee families in the boulder area and now am an ambassador advisor to the rising new york roadrunners um who work with hundreds of thousands of young kids through the public school system introducing them to running and moving and a healthy lifestyle Um, one of the things that's so important to me is that when I stand up in front of those kids that I represent that what's inside of them is enough to become someone like me. And you don't have to add anything additional to what's inside of you and what you were born with, um, to work your way up to be someone like me on the sport. That's powerful. Now, you mentioned behind the scenes. Let's talk about behind the scenes for a second. Obviously, there's a lot of running happening behind the scenes. That goes without saying, probably. But there's also some drug testing happening behind the scenes. One of the things that delayed our start this morning was you got a early morning (laughs) visit from a USADA drug tester to unannounced, as they are supposed to be, to, to make sure you're doing it the right way. Tell us about that side of things. How often are you tested... What is that like? And do you ever get a vacation from drug testing? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they they show up unannounced, which is uh, part of the effectiveness, uh, (laughs) which means that they can uh, interrupt your life at times where you would script it differently. Um, This morning, I was doing some stuff around the house and getting ready to get out the door to come see you guys. And when the drug testers knock at the door, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> like, this is, <laughs> this uh, is, is so ironic and funny um, that, yeah. And so it was fun to kind of open the door and say, hey, I'm headed on my way to a podcast about clean sport. So uh, they probably won't mind if I have <laughs> right, to right. do 20 minutes, uh, 20 minutes delayed or so. Um, I get, I, I don't know exactly how often I get tested. And of course, there, uh, it's, it's not 
predictable. So there are times where it seems more and, you know, then there's um, stretches where I'm like, oh, I haven't haven't seen the drug testers in a while. Um, Whether you're on the road or whether you're at home, um, (laughs) I've been in the drug testing pool for over a decade now. And uh, and so I feel like I, to some degree, have kind of been on parole for most of my adult (laughs) life (laughs) because uh, little known, especially... I don't know how it works everywhere around the world, but in the U.S. Um, in the U.S. system, you have to submit. It's called your whereabouts, and you have to submit pretty much where you're going to be at all times um, uh, throughout your training and your vacation and your holidays and so forth. Um, I've never had anyone show up on Christmas morning, but uh, <laughs> they do show up on the road. You you aren't necessarily just at your house at a prescribed time in the morning. Um, and, and that's of course, in addition, that's the random testing that's in addition to the testing that we actually do, um, on the road in competition. So, um, so there's a lot of testing going on. I I guess if I was going to guess, I'd probably get tested several times quarterly. So, um, five or more times a year, which is outside of just, you know, you ran really fast, you ran really well, and they're going to test you to make sure that you deserve um, uh, the, the place that you got. So outside of competition, yeah, it's, it's more frequent than I think most people would think. And you have to tell them where you're going to be every single day, every single day. And how often do you report that? So we, we give these quarterly whereabouts, but I don't know what my three months is going to look like most of the time. So, uh, you can give, um, updates throughout time. And so if I'm going to get on an airplane, if I'm going to go somewhere for several hours and not be at my, my residence, um, I send a quick text or an email saying, this is an update. This is where I'm going to be. And it's become such, like I said, I've been in the testing pool for (laughs) over a decade now. So it's just such an automatic part of my life, um, that I don't think about it much, but, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a lot. I mean, you got to let them know. They know when I'm at church. They know when I'm <laughs> when I'm out uh, to the zoo with a friend with their kids. Um, they they know where I am and what I'm doing, so that they can track me down and um, and we can get the testing done. It's like you're on house arrest of sorts. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is that? So, are you doing blood and urine each time? What is the test like? So depending on who asks for the test, so it can be USADA or it can be um, uh, the international governing bodies, um, they have different tests. So they have urine and they have blood. And sometimes it's both. Um, more recent, I've, I've been giving more blood tests recently than ever before, um, which requires a lot of funding. So I take that as a positive signal that um, I don't know. I don't know if this is true or not, but uh, it's, it's, it's a positive signal to me, I think that it's likely that um, blood is a better test. And so if they're testing me more, I'm hoping they're testing my competitors more with blood. Um, And so always happy and willing to do that. But um, to give you an idea of the process, they show up at your door. um, And if you, if you aren't there, they, they want to track you down. They, there's um, certain protocol they have to find you. Um, And so anyway, so they show up at your door and it's two representatives. um, And then there's always, a woman or uh, if you're a male athlete, a man there to observe the test, um, whether it's urine or a phlebotomist there to take blood. Um, and they watch you pee. They, they, yeah. As uh, <laughs> not creepy as they can possibly be. <laughs> yes. Um, and it was, it's really funny. I've, you know, you, you start to get to know testers. I mean, there's testers in certain regions. And so you see a lot of the same people over and over. And uh, 
I have, uh, yeah, just funny long history with a lot of these people. And, uh, yeah, it's, 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 I don't know what to say. It's I mean, weird. Yeah. It's weird. I don't think many <laughs> fans think about this thing. And it's funny because they'll show up and you'll be headed somewhere. Um, I've had times where, um, I was actually coming back from a trip and ended up last minute going down to Colorado Springs to the Olympic training center. And they knock on my door in Boulder and I'm in Colorado Springs. And so we both got in the car and drove to Denver and met at a Marriott. And I took a drug test in, wow. in uh, the bathroom of a Marriott halfway between Colorado Springs and, <laughs> and Boulder. Um, they've come to uh, dinner parties with me because once once they contact you, you you aren't you can't leave their site until uh, until you've um given your test so they've come to dinner parties with me i was hosting a dinner uh with a group of people downtown and i had to call last minute and ask the restaurant which very graciously added two seats to the table <laughs> for two <laughs> un unexpecting guests wow. um awesome. yeah and so there's there's different funny life situations where you say the best case scenario is to delay things 20 minutes get the test done and get out of there but if you've just finished you know a long run or a workout and, and you're not going to go to the bathroom for a while, or they, they ring the doorbell at six in the morning and you had just gotten up for the day and already used the restroom. Um, then just, uh, get comfortable. You're going to get to know them. You're going to spend some quality time together. <laughs> I would be paranoid if I were you about a false positive or a tainted supplement or a situation like that that didn't represent what you were about so how do you avoid those issues as an athlete oh yeah i mean i being in the testing pool for 10 years i sometimes i think uh if if something was was gonna go wrong it already would have but then of course uh being a student of statistics, uh, you also wonder the longer I'm in here, is it more likely that something that shouldn't go wrong, that could go wrong? Uh, am I just increasing my odds? So you can play mind games with yourself. But the truth is, I mean, they want to get accurate results. Um, I, I believe that you have to believe that if you're willing to submit and surrender <laughs> a sample to them uh, multiple times uh, a year or a month or a quarter. Uh, and I think the, the, the most important thing in my mind is to be as honest as possible, because when we, when we submit a drug test, you don't just submit a drug test, but you also have the opportunity to declare, um, any substances you've put in your body other than food. Um, and so if you're taking supplements or if you're taking medication or something, you have the opportunity to declare that. And so, um, being mindful of that and being honest about that, I think is, um, one really important layer. Um, and then I should back up, um, before you ever put that stuff in your body, also having a very, um, clear understanding of what the rules are and what's permissible, but then also, um, having a very clear understanding of, uh, where these supplements or medications are coming from and that you really trust your career on it. Um, so, so that's, that's, that's a layer of this whole process that, um, is super, super important. Um, and athletes have to really not just consider, but really live by in order to, um, not get, uh, an accidental, uh, dirty test. As we wrap this up, Shanna, as someone who's involved with advocacy for clean sport, 
with the Clean Sport Collective. What do you want to ask Jenny about the current state of clean sport advocacy or what we could be doing more in sport to make this better for athletes that are doing it the right way? Well, I definitely think it's a collective effort. I think that whether that athlete is clean or dirty, it's a whole collective of people that help that athlete in one way or another, um, from agents to coaches to sponsors, and it shouldn't only fall on the athlete. I guess my two questions for you is, one is you referenced John Evans a little bit earlier as being part of your support system. And um, for all of those that don't know, he is a big part of New Balance and bringing you onto the team. So I'd love to know how your sponsor has been treating you throughout all of this, you know, and how they help you continue forward, you know, because I mean, there are some contracts that have reductions and that also makes it scary for an athlete. And then um, I would, my final question would be, how do you envision the sport cleaning up and how do you think we can all come together in a good place to help that happen? Yeah, I think the sponsors are a really important part of this conversation that often gets left out. Um, I, I, I studied economics in school, and so people respond to incentives. Yes. And the culture that you create where, where people are contracted to do this kind of work is really important. So culture and incentive is the two things that are going to set the course for athletes from a young age and then on to the twilight years of their career where they're holding on for dear life and seeing how long they can live this dream. And so uh, the culture and the incentives from New Balance are beautiful. I mean, they, they love the sport for the human achievement um, that, that each of us are testing ourselves and, and um, they've really created a, a, a culture for the athletes where the expectation is, and, and it's, it's, I mean, not just the expectation, but um, your, I don't even, I don't know. I mean, we don't talk about this a ton, but um, I can't imagine somebody being a New Balance athlete and doing it dishonestly. Um, it's such a prerequisite for being part of this family and such an understanding amongst the group of us um, that that's just the way that we live and work. And um, and so I think that's a really important and part of why I feel so connected to the brand, because I feel like we are absolutely on the same page and the team is on the same page. And I can be really proud rooting for my teammates because um, I really believe in them and I believe in the way they're they're living out their career and their hard work. Um, so that's, that's a real pleasure to be a part of a team like that. Um, and to provide some amount of incentive or security, uh, to, yeah, incentivize athletes to do it the right way. I don't know perfectly what the solution is or what that looks like, but New Balance has done a really incredible job, um, fostering that, that culture there. And I'm really, I'm really proud to be a part of it. Yes. That's hugely important. Yes. Well, thank you, Jenny. Yeah, one last question for those that might now be Jenny fans. What can we expect for you this year? It's a world championship year with Doha coming up, but where are you racing next? What are your goals for the season? Uh, 
yeah, so for this year, uh, I am getting ready in just under a month to leave for Europe. I'll kick off my 1500 meter season in Rome. Uh, I race there on June 6th. And then June, uh, I think it's the 16th, I'll be racing in Morocco in the 1500 again. And then I come back and getting ready for US championships, which is always uh, a huge fight to make that team. So hopefully, fingers crossed, I'm healthy and ready to go on the starting line in July. Um, and then the world championships, uh, top three will make the team and the world championships are in Doha. So, uh, let's see, I've, I've made a lot of 1500 meter teams. I haven't missed one, uh, and since I started. And so I'm just trying to, to extend it as long as possible. And, um, of course, Doha being the world championships this year and being so late in October, um, the 2020 Olympics is already kind of starting to creep into people's minds. Certainly it's creeping into mine. And so, uh, 2020, uh, I'm hoping to make my fourth Olympic team, uh, in maybe possibly my last Olympic team. So I'm going for broke. I'm really excited. I think the next 15 months are going to be uh, a barn burner. I can't wait to see how it turns out. Awesome. Well, we'll be cheering for you. Thank Very you for lovely. coming on. Yeah, thank you for coming on the podcast and thank you for all you do as an ambassador for our sport. Yes. Thank you. Jenny. Yeah. Thanks for having me. So there you go, Jenny Simpson, everyone. Hopefully, if you didn't know Jenny already, then you are now a fan after listening to that. We really appreciate Jenny coming on, and we really appreciate those who have listened to this podcast so far. If you don't mind, we'd love you to share it with your friends. You can also now check us out on iTunes if you haven't already found us there by just simply searching on Clean Sport Collective on the Apple Podcast app or within iTunes and you can find us easily there. We'll be on other platforms coming up soon. So thanks so much already for tuning in. And of course, you can go check us out at cleansport.org or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at cleansportco. That's at cleansportco and get updates on all things Clean Sport Collective plus see when we release new podcast episodes. And as I mentioned before, we'll be releasing them every other Sunday. So the next one will be coming out on June 30th. So stay tuned for that. And thanks again for listening. We will talk to you very soon.